Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. All this week on the program, we're listening back to some of the conversations we've had on our show the past year. Today, associate producer Samantha Matsumoto is joining me to share some of the shows that stood out to her over the past year. And Samantha, I know the first show you picked is from last January. It's about student loan forgiveness. Tell us more about this show. Yeah, so we did the show shortly after President Joe Biden extended the student loan payment pause for the third time at that point. There was a lot of questions about what the future Mm -hmm. of student loan debt would be. It really reignited this conversation about, is this the best way to handle student loan debt? What should we do? What's the most appropriate way to address this issue? I remember this vividly because the phone lines were full. And why does this show stick with you? Yeah, I mean, we really built this show around um, a question that we wanted to ask our listeners, which is, what would you do if you didn't have student debt? And what were you able to do um, with the money that you normally would be paying towards your student loans when the loan payments were on pause? And we heard just these really vivid stories. They called in and there were people saying, I was able to buy a house. I was able to afford childcare. I was able to go back to grad school. And I thought it was just this really interesting example of our callers are so great and they're so generous with sharing their personal stories and what's going on in their lives. And I thought it really illuminated this issue and and kind of helped, I think, us to understand it in a different way. It humanized it. Yeah, yes. it was really good. And, and this is an ongoing story because uh, we know in late August, President Biden announced uh, a plan to forgive student loans for millions of people. Now that plan is still, it's being reviewed by the Supreme Court, which will decide whether the Biden administration is now overstepping stopping its authority, uh, complicated. And just a few weeks ago, the Biden administration announced it was once again extending the student loan repayment pause while the case is in court. (laughs) Yeah, so this is something that obviously we're going to continue to follow. Um, We did another show about student loan forgiveness um, Mm -hmm. back in September, I want to say. And I mean, we'll probably do another one in the new year because this is something that continues to affect people's lives. And I think there's a lot of questions and uncertainty around what comes next with student loan and college Okay, well, let's take a listen uh, to this show from last January about student loan forgiveness. I talked with two researchers about the debate on student loan debt and whether canceling uh, debt is the best way to address the student debt crisis. Our guests that day were Jalil Mustafa Bishop, an assistant professor at Villanova University in Pennsylvania. He researches how student loan debt affects black borrowers. We also had with us Jason Delisle, a senior policy fellow at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C., and he studies higher education, finance and student debt. I asked listeners to share their stories about student loans. And here's one of the calls we took that day from Joe in St. Paul. Without having to pay my student loans, I was, me and my wife both have been able to buy a house, and I see that as a benefit to everyone that we can start supporting the economy. So, uh, Joe, you were able to save enough money for a down payment for a house over the last two years? Yes. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah, it was a lot of money that otherwise would have gone to student loans. So in this case, the, this pause has, has been life-changing for you all. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you. That's Joe in uh, St. Paul. Uh, let's take another phone call in La Crosse, Wisconsin. We have Taylor on the line. Taylor, what do you want to share with us about student loan debt? Yeah, good morning. Um, I wanted to share that um, 
It's an interesting series of events. My husband and I both had about 20000 left in our um, student loan repayment. I have a master's. He went to a private school. Um, and we had been paying out on our loans for about 10 years. And we had a, a baby at the time. And then my grandma, who I was really close with, passed away, um, which was obviously very sad. But she left a significant inheritance, significant to our family. Um, and my, my husband and I were able to pay off our loans, um, which was lovely. And then about six months later, we had twins. Um, and so we realized, and we think about it all the time, that had we been paying that $400 in a month, you know, 200 each each person in, in student loan repayments, like we wouldn't be able to afford the childcare mm-hmm. um, for three under, three under three, essentially. Uh, so it was, a, you know, like I said, an interesting series of events. And um, I, you know, kind of a tell myself everything happens for a reason and you know why I lost my grandma um she knew that you know twins were coming and if we didn't want to you know one of us have to stay home from our jobs that we both love um we were going to need that money and so it was again a life-changing a life-changing gift for us and in the simple form of so Taylor, of, uh, student loans. so Taylor as you watch what's happening and this extended pause uh, on debt repayment you know you really sympathize with the folks who um are getting a chance to save some money Absolutely. No, I totally, I totally get it. Um, it's, it is life changing. And All right, but, well, th- you thank know. you, Taylor. Thank you for calling in. I appreciate hearing your story. Um, in South St. Paul, let's hear from Michael. Michael, what's going on with you? And what do you think about um, this, this college debt situation? I feel almost a little cheated. Um, I did my due diligence, due diligence uh, in high school and talked to my parents about college and decided that it wasn't uh, physically um, possible for me to go to school mm-hmm. and make these kind of payments. Um, so I instead joined the military. And so um, I sacrificed a, a large portion of, of my youth uh, in the military so that I could pay for my college. And I almost feel cheated, like uh, I could have gotten a get-out-of-jail-free card. But what are we going to do in the future to prevent this type of... I feel it's almost a, a lack of responsibility for those who went ahead and chose to go to school. I hear you. All right. That's Michael and South St. Paul. Um, Jason and Julia, we heard a lot from our our listeners there. Um, You know, you know, I just want to take a step back um, as this caller talks about the future. Uh, How do we even get in this situation? As I mentioned earlier, Americans owe a total of $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, $1.7 trillion. How did we get to this place where we owe so much in student loans, Jason? The government for a long time, the federal government for a long time, has made student loans available under the notion that the degree is worth it, that the education is worth it. So helping people get the degree with a loan allows them to have higher earnings and then they can pay back the loan. So that sort of rationale, I would argue, is still largely intact. Taylor, we heard from one of our um, callers, a young man said that over this two-year period where uh, the loan uh, repayment has been paused, he and his wife saved their money. They were able to make a down payment on a house. They're now homeowners. So this has been life-changing for them. Do you hear that a lot? Absolutely. I mean, I think the piece we have to realize here, and and that um, caller really made the case clear, is that we can't just measure the cost of Um, having student loans on pause and the cost to the government, we have to also think about the cost of allowing student loans to continue to limit people's economic livelihoods. So at the same time that pausing student loans has has kind of canceled billions of dollars in interest every month, we also know that if you cancel student loans 
on a broad base that many economists estimate um, that the GDP will grow anywhere from 80 to 100 billion dollars a year. And a part of that is that people will have money to invest in different economic planning activities from small businesses to home ownership, um, but also things like childcare and health care. And to the question of whether or not people regret their education, you know, when I talked to the 1300 borrowers, they all celebrated and felt accomplished about being able to earn their education. But 66% of them did say they regretted taking out student loans. And the reason is that Again, education is something that is increasingly required to participate in our economy, but student loans is kind of this predatory trap where it's saying you have to get this education. We're promising you that your education is going to help you repay the student loans. And we're seeing after each cohort of borrowers that that simply is not true. So yes, someone with a college credential has the potential to earn um, more money, but we're not seeing as the U.S. population becomes more educated, a drastic increase in earnings that we actually have seen wages stagnant over the last 20 years. And that's something to really um, parse out here, that when we say college degree earners are have higher incomes, you first need to ask um, what, what do researchers mean by higher incomes? Because often they're counting 60000 65000 as the high income threshold. And I think for everyday Americans, we wouldn't call those income groups high income. And I think we also have to ask who earns a higher income when they borrow student loans and earn a college degree. And we know that's not true for non-traditional students. It's not true for students of color. And it's not true for low-income students that they're seeing this large return um, that allows them re- to repay their student debt. So there's a lot of nuances here that we can't um, erase with statements such mm-hmm. as if you have a college degree, you're also making more money. All right. Our phone lines are full. So let's bring in more of our listeners as we talk about the pause on student loans and and, and the possibility of, of debt forgiveness and uh, want to hear your stories and want to know how your life would be different if you didn't have those monthly loan payments. And what have you been able to do over the last two years while these loan payments have been on pause? In Minneapolis, Ashley's on the line. Ashley, thank you for waiting. What do you want to tell us? One of your first callers had mentioned that people make a choice to take student loans. Um, I am white. I grew up upper middle class. I'm now 34. But when I was 18, And graduating from high school, going to college wasn't presented as a choice. I was basically told, as many of my peers were, that the only way to have a stable and productive life is to go to college. So there was no option presented to me to not take out student loans. So I did it. I got a degree from the University of Minnesota in professional journalism. I'm now a bartender saddled with $46,000 in debt, and I absolutely can't even fathom going back to paying $300 a month. In the two years that I haven't had to pay loans, I've gone from $0 in savings to an exponential amount You know that I never would have been able to do with this $300 payment. But I just wanted to make the point that it was almost like fear-mongering as every adult, school counselors, parents, everyone in our lives as 18-year-old kids was t- were telling us that the only path to success, to success was to take out these student loans and to go to college. And I don't think that was fair. And I do have resentment about that, as um, your contributors were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I have some comments on Twitter that I like what you're saying, um, Ashley, as well. And um, what do you hear in in her story, Jason? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, generally, I think the advice that she got, though, is right, um, that 
does pay off. A college degree generally does pay off on average. Now, there are cases certainly where it doesn't. Um, and I think the appropriate sort of policy response is to, is to have a, a, some kind of safety net, um, not blanket loan forgiveness and not the kind of broad payment pause that we have, but some kind of targeted assistance that's based on income, which, which, we, which we do have. Now, I, I think, you know, one thing I think that is a little bit dangerous in a lot of the rhetoric around um, how bad student loans are is that it, it could, you know, I think it's starting to undermine support for even having a federal student loan program. And I think it's an important question for people to ask, what would the world be like if we didn't make any new student loans going forward? Because, I mean, much of the criticism of the program seems to move in that direction, arguing that we shouldn't be, the government shouldn't even be making loans. Uh, I'd like to talk about racial disparities all the time on the show. And Jalil, I want to talk about a study that found 20 years after graduating, the median white borrower had paid off most of their student debt, but the median black borrower still owed most of their student debt. And listen to these numbers. The median white borrower had paid off 94% of their student debt, while the median black borrower still owed 95% of their student debt. What do you think is behind that that racial disparity, Jalil? So what's important to understand about higher education and student loans is that they're not a place that can be separated from larger social systems in our society. So black people are already navigating a society where they have a racial wealth gap that was created historically and currently um, through policies that discriminate when it comes to asset building activities from home ownership to um, labor market opportunities and also higher ed. So black borrowers are more likely to enroll in institutions that are um, have less resources are um, underperforming, are more likely to enroll institutions that are for-profits that we know have a long predatory history of targeting um, students of color and not delivering that promised return, but charging them more money. And then they enter a labor market that is rampant with um, labor market discrimination from underemployment to unemployment to wage gaps that, again, we can't assume because someone has a credential that they're earning um, the same because we see that a black bachelor's degree earner still earns less than a white bachelor's degree earner. When we look beyond income and think about wealth, we know the median wealth in our country is around $100,000 that 67% of all borrowers do not hit that threshold, and 51% of student debt borrowers have no wealth or negative wealth, Um, and that's particularly true for black borrowers. So we have to understand that even though we're going through what seems like the same higher ed system, experiencing the same type of student loan policy, for communities of color, they're experiencing um, those policies and systems in different ways based on our our um, racist history, but also ongoing practices of discrimination and predatory lending, which is the the student loan system. So, and I think to the earlier point about, are we criticizing student loans so much that we're saying we should move away from funding higher ed and make it accessible? I think the answer here is no. We want a a higher ed that's a public good, a higher ed that's accessible, but we want, but there's other ways to fund higher ed that doesn't rely on um, student loan debt that has grown by 107% in the last decade. And again, we have to raise the question of what will that mean for the next decade and the next generation of students and communities? Let's go back to the phone lines and I Santi Taylor's on the phone. Good morning, Taylor. What do you want to tell us? I made that decision to go to college in hopes of getting into the school system. Both me and my wife had did that at a 
smaller school, hopefully with a smaller price tag. And it just kind of seems now that we're out of the school system and into the career field, the, the, the compensation for that degree just isn't really matching up. And so, you know, what did you study, Taylor? Compiling, and it's not really a good, you know, what? justification for what I paid for. And so, Taylor, what kind know, of work do you do? I'm sorry. What do you study? What did you study? What do you do? Um, so I went for physical education, um, and and uh, never really got a teaching degree. But I work in the school system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my wife is actually a, a school teacher um, in Minnesota too, as well. And so, as we now start a family and try to, you know, finances, and we you know we don't we don't spend very much. We're trying to just save as much as we can. And, this has been helping us save and, and pay for cars and, and repairs and all that stuff. But, you know, without that, we'd be, you know, kind of uh, really, by, you know, uh, between a rock and a hard place. So this is helpful. Um, my, I guess my question is, if, if I were to make that choice and say, well, I can't afford it, does that mean that people, other people who maybe want to be teachers and, and career fields that we need, do they just, we just don't have teachers anymore, you know? So mm. thank you, Taylor. And, and thank you for the work that you and your wife are doing and teaching our kids. Um, let's take another phone call in Minneapolis. Leah is on the line. Leah, what do you want to tell us about uh, student debt and, and college loans? I hear people saying, uh, talking a lot about high income earners and both my husband and I are attorneys and we both uh, went to law school and took out debt to go to law school. So we have somewhere in the neighborhood of $400,000 in student loan debt. The two of you, um, as a couple, you have $400,000. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we are in an income-based repayment program because we can't afford to make the payments that they would like us to make, which is about $4,000 a month. Um, and we have two kids in daycare, which I know other callers have mentioned. But I think what I want to say is that I appreciate that my degree has allowed me to earn a higher income. But what I do think is a problem is the interest rate, especially on graduate student loans. Uh, my interest rate is, is about 7%, um, which means that on a monthly basis, when I make a payment, I'm only I'm not even really touching my principal because the payment for interest is so high. And then in addition to that, you know, once my loan's discharged, I'm going to pay discharge of indebtedness taxes, which could be tens of thousands of dollars. So I think, you know, I appreciate that I should pay back what I borrowed, but I think that some of the problems lie in uh, the interest rate and the tax. Um, the tax programs that apply to student loans if you don't work in the public sector. So I really wish Congress would take some action um, mm-hmm. on some of those things to make it more fair, you know, to borrow. I appreciate you sharing that with us. That's Leah. So uh, to our guests, uh, Jalil and, and Jason, uh, we have a, a couple, uh, two teachers, uh, and then we have another couple, two lawyers, uh, both with, uh, you know, a lot of debt that they're dealing with in, in, in addition to other household bills. And Jalil, what did you hear in those two calls? So I think this is something that represents an experience that um, many borrowers are having, where if you are the teacher um, who went into a field because it's something you're passionate about Mm -hmm. and you didn't really expect to make this this really high income or you're a lawyer who borrowed more and you are making a higher income, there's still, there's still economic and student debt struggles there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're different, but we need to pay attention to both. So often when we make the focus, when we try to highlight the lawyer as the face of student loan debt, really we're erasing um, the teachers who not only had to um, enter a field where they don't get paid enough, but they also are often required to get a master's, meaning they're often required to go to graduate school. Um, and they 
have a program called public service loan forgiveness that we know largely has not worked since it has existed. And then on the other side, when we hear things like lawyers or doctors who have um, large debts, we shouldn't, again, automatically assume that we don't want to engage in some type of debt relief for those groups because all lawyers and doctors are not banking two, $300,000 a year. All lawyers and um, doctors are not we don't, we don't want to imagine them as only being in a private sector. They may also be contributing to social goods and kind mm-hmm. of public-facing um, activities. So a part of this is understanding that the student debt experiences are nuanced <clears throat> and that just looking at income is not enough to um, measure these issues. And I would just give one more data point that 60% of loans from 2013 to 2015 that were issued in those years have higher balances now um, at least as of 2019. So that means that most of the loans that we put out in, from 2013 to 2015, the balances have increased, even though borrowers are making payments. And to the last caller's point is that income-based repayment plans were never meant to be a widespread solution. They were meant to help borrowers when they were struggling. But because the cost of higher ed becomes so expensive, people are increasingly relying on them and not really making any payments that count towards principal. They're just kind of struggling along, making payments on interest and seeing their balance skyrocket over time. That's from a conversation we had earlier this year about student debt relief. And I spoke with two guests. They were Jalil Mustafa Bishop, an assistant professor at Villanova University, who researches how student loan debt affects black borrowers, as well as Jason Delisle, a senior policy fellow at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. And he studies higher education, finance and student debt. This week, we're hearing from our show's producers and revisiting some of our favorite shows from 2022, the ones that are the most memorable to us. Today, Samantha Matsumoto is joining me to talk about some of her favorite conversations from the past year. Samantha, the next show you chose uh, for today is about tipping, tipping in restaurants and the history behind that practice. Uh, Tell us uh, again how that show came about. We got the idea for the show based on a conversation that we were having in the office. We were kind of talking about going out to eat and and noticing that a lot of restaurants were starting to implement these like service fees. Mm -hmm. So like you go out to eat and the check comes at the end and um, some restaurants will have a fee that says, um, this is an additional fee. It goes to service the charge. Staff. Right. There was like wellness charges as well. And they really kind of varied from mm-hmm. restaurant to restaurant and place to place. And I remember just like being like, I have all these questions about what these service fees are, how they work, how like, they're distributed. Once yeah, you how pay they're it. distributed. And right. like what I should be doing as a customer of like, well, should I be adding an additional tip on top of the service fee? What does this mean? And Why is this so hard? Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I leave the house. <laughs> so I, I feel like we were able to kind of like take those questions and just be like if we have these questions other people Mm -hmm. must have those questions too it got me thinking also about the practice of tipping and why we do it in the first place which is actually as we learned working on the show is actually linked to um the end of slavery when employers wanted an excuse to pay recently freed black americans less money yeah we like to dip into history how did we get to this point and this show stands out to me for that reason too because it's sort of what we do we could pick a topic and really dive deep into it. Yeah, I I think it's 
it's really one of the things I like about this job is that we can look around at everyday things, the things that are affecting us, the things that we're noticing in our lives, and just get really curious about them and say, why is this the way it is? How can we understand it better? And what does it really mean? And I think just being able to to dive into that and learn new things is, is a really great part of the work that we get to mm-hmm. do on this show. All right. Well, let's listen back to some of that show on the history and the present day status of tipping. One of the guests I spoke with was Saru J. Araman, the president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center there at the University of California, Berkeley. She's also the co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Center United, which is a nonprofit that advocates to improve wages for restaurant workers. And this is from my conversation with her. So in most of the country, the wage for tipped workers is an absurd, outrageous, and ridiculous $2.13 an hour. That's the federal minimum wage for tipped workers. It's under $5 in 43 in 40 states. Mm. Minnesota is one of seven states that got rid of the sub-minimum wage for t- tipped workers many years ago. But the fact that the restaurant industry in Minnesota continues to be one of the lowest paid industries of all, in the whole state is a result of this ongoing lobbying by the National Restaurant Association based on this argument that, you know, these workers get tips and therefore it's okay to have them be paid as little as they are paid. So going back, um, Saru, and it's only recently that I I had read the story about um, the history of tipping really being very closely uh, tied to the, you know, the, the years immediately after the end of slavery with restaurant owners and company owners not wanting to pay formerly enslaved people real wages. Like they, there was a, it was a deliberate attempt to, you know, affect how much money they were making. That's right. And it was hospitality in general. And the story is even more interesting because, you know, just before emancipation, a lot of male waiters in multiple large cities across the East Coast and Midwest went on strike. They had been receiving a wage. There wasn't a lot of tipping at the time. And they went on strike for higher wages. And the restaurant industry just before emancipation started replacing men with women which is how the industry became overwhelmingly female. Two-thirds of tipped workers in Minnesota and the U.S. are women. And disproportionately women of color at emancipation, there were two sectors of hospitality that sought to replace black workers' wages with tips. One was the restaurant industry, which was mostly women, as I just said. The other was the Pullman train company Mm. that hired mostly black men to serve as porters, tipped porters on the trains going back and forth between the East and West Coast at the time. And those black men formed the first black union in the United States, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and fought and won the right to an actual wage rather than living exclusively on tips. Unfortunately, the women, the black women in the restaurant industry were not as lucky, didn't have a union, weren't able to fight to get a full wage. And that is why to this day, the National Restaurant Association has been so persistent and successful in their lobbying suppress wages and say, it's okay, these people get tipped. Saru, thank you uh, again for your time, for uh, giving us uh, some more information about the the history of tipping and the changes that are happening. Uh, And I know you have to leave us now, but we're going to continue the conversation. We've been talking with Saru J. Araman, the president of One Fair Wage and director of the Food Labor Research Center there at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the co-founder of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, which is a nonprofit that advocates to improve wages for restaurant workers. Enjoy the rest of your vacation, Saru. 
I want to bring in our other two guests now as we talk about the history of tipping, changes to tipping, why people tip, why they don't. Uh, we have with us Paul Bagden. Paul is a professor of hospitality at Johnson and Wales University in Rhode Island, where he researches guest service and tip elimination. Hi, Paul. Hi, good morning. Yeah, thank you for waiting for us. And uh, also we have with us Teofio Reyes, the Chief Program Officer for Restaurant Opportunities Centers United. He is joining us uh, from Philadelphia. Good morning to you, Teo. Good morning. Hi. Nice to be here with you. Okay, a lot to talk about here. Uh, so, Teo, uh, you, you are out there um, pushing for workers around the country. And what have you heard from uh, restaurant workers and other types of workers who rely on tipping? What are their thoughts on tipping right now in, in 2022? The last experience of the last two years has definitely changed uh, the perspective of a lot of uh, of people towards tipping. We have a different system all around the country, right? There's states that don't have a subman wage, but then the federal one is two dollars and thirteen cents an hour, which is uh, which is really unlivable. Uh, say that again. For, I'm still trying to process that. The yeah, absolutely. The the tipped minimum wage is two dollars and thirteen cents an hour, and there's uh, over a dozen states that have that that where workers have to live with that wage um, and die with that wage. Uh, it's it's really insufficient. Um, and the but what the pandemic has done is it has really increased tip insecurity. And so there's a lot greater, I think, uh, concern about wages and understanding that tipping is not a stable system uh, to really ensure uh, a livable wage for anybody. Now, Minnesota Um, is one of the few states in the nation that requires employers to pay tipped employees the full state minimum wage before factoring in tips. And so is that that's significant? Is that enough for workers to make a livable wage? uh, It helps. It's not enough, but it certainly helps. It helps a lot. Uh, and you can see, you know, the poverty rates are, are much lower among workers, restaurant workers in Minnesota than in, uh, in, the, in those states with $2.13 uh, hourly wage. Uh, but, you, but it isn't enough. And you need to, you know, the, uh, until the wage is high enough to really provide a livable wage, tips are, are sort of a necessary component to get people up to that wage, up to that rate. And we need to look, look at other factors, right? I mean, that could impact this health care, for example, child care. These are uh, these are costs that bring down someone's ability to, to stay above poverty and to, and to thrive. Uh, and so those, you know, you can factor those in. But the, the bottom line is, even though the wage is higher in Minnesota, and it needs to be higher, it's still not enough to, to meet workers needs. That again is from my conversation earlier this year about tipping. Okay, Samantha, you have one last show you wanted to highlight. It's from a series we did around Election Day about all the different issues that matter the most to voters. And so let's talk about this series and what our thought was going into this show. Yeah, so we wanted to take a look at some of the things that voters said mattered the most to them. So we looked at a poll that NPR News, the Star Tribune, and CARE 11 did about the top issues voters said that they were thinking about as they were getting ready to cast their vote. And we decided, let's pick four of those issues and really like dive into them and see what do people think about them. We asked people to call in about how it's influencing their vote. And we booked some experts to really help us understand the context behind those issues and just really help us dig into them to let voters understand. It's like, why do people think the way that they do? Exactly. Again, looking back, sort of like the history of some of the issues and how we get to today. 
And so one of the shows that we did was about public safety. Public mm-hmm. safety was one of the um, most important issues that voters raised a lot. They ranked it as the second most important issue in the Crime. November election. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to break that down and really understand what is happening. I think that there's a lot of just really inflammatory rhetoric around crime rates and violence. And so we wanted to really dig into that and just separate like the fact from the myth, but also really hear how people were thinking about this issue as they were getting ready to vote. Right. Not just the noise. Because remember how noisy it gets before election day each year. All right. So let's listen back to uh, a part of that conversation. And I remember I spoke with two guests. We had James Dinsley with us. James is a professor and chair of the Department of Criminal Justice at the Brooklyn Park campus of Metropolitan State University. And he's done a lot of research on criminal networks, violence and policing. He's the author of the book, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Also in the studio with us that day, we had Matthew Horace, the chief security officer at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. But he also has 28 years of law enforcement experience on the federal and the local level, including time at the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. He's also the author of a book. His book is called The Black and the Blue, A Cop Reveals the Crimes, Racism and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. A lot to talk about. Uh, First, though, just in general, what is your sense of how concerns about public safety are affecting voters this year? Are you hearing lots of people say that they are worried about crime and concerned about law enforcement officers? Matt, I'll start with you. Well, I think locally, um, the answer is clearly yes. And nationally, the answer is also yes. I think the last several years have placed an increased focus on both. And I think depending on what side of the lens you're looking from, uh, sort of dictates where you stand on all these issues. Definitely a lot of emotion, both fear and anger, I would say. Very much so. And we pointed that out uh, in, in the book, The Black and the Blue. This is not new. This has always been here for a variety of reasons that are very predictable. Mm-hmm. And Professor Densley, would you what would you add to that? Have you found that people are really talking more about their concerns about crime and about the police? Yeah, definitely. The last few years have been notable because the data will show us that uh, violent crime in particular rose uh, significantly in 2020 and again in 2021. It looks like for 2022, it's actually coming down. But that rise over the last couple of years, combined with the unrest around George Floyd's murder, it's combined to create this sort of climate where people don't particularly feel safe anymore. And I think it's important to realize that crime and violence are not randomly distributed across communities. There are communities where it clusters. And for the people that live in those communities, it's a very uh, proximate and a very real concern because it's a daily reality that they are uh, addressing with. And I think recognizing that it's not just clustering like spatially in neighborhoods, but it's also clustering socially. So if you are in close proximity to somebody who carries a gun in public and is involved in gangs and in violence and so on and so forth, your risk of being a victim or offender is exponentially greater. And so in those contexts, this is a real concern for families, for neighborhoods and so on and so forth. And that's why it's top of the agenda, I think, for many people uh, this election season. What about uh, concerns about trust and um, the relationship that many communities have uh, in police and how they view police officers. There's a chronic lack of trust in all of our institutions right now. If you think about the last few years, we don't trust journalists, we don't trust scientists, we don't trust 
the police. We don't trust our politicians. We're on social media increasingly polarized, arguing with one another about everything and anything. Mm-hmm. So I think this is, is part of an extension, if you will, of the general lack of trust that we have in all of our institutions, but it's especially pronounced for law enforcement. And that's because of the major high-profile cases that we see now. And I think this is the important thing. There's always been examples of police violence and brutality. The data will actually tell you that the the trend line is relatively flat in terms of officer-involved shootings and other things. But we see them now. And that's the difference, is when those videos go viral, it hits home and it's real. And I think that's why this is, again, top of mind for everybody. So, Matt, we have two things. We have a fear of crime, and but there's also, for many people, you know, a lack of trust and fear of police. Very much so. And, you know, this, this has been uh, exacerbated by the last two years and George Floyd and others, right? But then you also have the general public that don't live in some of these communities who, who look at this in real time and they tend to agree that issue of lack of trust of uh, institutions and law enforcement. But then when things quiet down and they go back to their quiet communities, then it goes back to a us versus them. I'm happy with the law enforcement services I receive because when I call police, they come and the officer who shows up, I can expect the type of treatment and behavior. And in many communities, that's still not the case. And do you see these views uh, about crime and and police playing a role as as people decide who they are supporting in this upcoming election? Well, sure, because it's it's being given to you and spoon fed in every imaginable way every day. Some communities are experiencing uptick in crime. Others aren't. And they're placing blame on people and institutions. Mm -hmm. And so who is to blame? I don't know that I don't know that any particular person is to blame. One thing we know, and this has never changed, when there's an inequity in housing, education, economics, transportation and healthcare, you're going to have situations where there are increased rates of crime. And these situations are generally more prevalent in communities of color than others. And Professor Dinsley, do you see the views right now that people have and their their feelings, and in some cases, just personal accounts uh, uh, about crime and police uh, playing a major role in who they're planning to vote for this upcoming election? Yeah, I think it's um, how people use the data and how people use the experiences and how they weaponize them. So at the moment, we're bombarded with... uh, constant imagery around crime and violence and campaign ads yeah the ads are all scary and and they're they're terrifying but that's intentional because fear sells and fear gets people to act and react and we see one of your callers mentioned this earlier which is that for the first time they feel like they have to own a firearm because that's Mm -hmm. going to be the way that they protect themselves there is an economy around fear And there is also a political component to fear. And it's how we weaponize that fear to get people to act. And that's what's sad about this is that sometimes the data gets lost in translation. Sometimes the the reality on the street gets lost in translation. It gets reduced down to the kind of sound bites that are trying to get people to to vote. The perception and again, the the feeling. Exactly. Well, let's take some phone calls. Uh, We're talking about public safety and whether it is playing a role in how you plan to vote in the upcoming election. And as I talk with two guests who follow uh, public safety and law enforcement issues closely, I want to hear from you. Are you thinking about crime and gun violence and police reform as you get ready to vote? In 
Minneapolis. Let's take a phone call from Paulette, who is on hold. Good morning, Paulette. And what did you want to add to the conversation? Good morning. I would like to talk about the um, sort of the pipeline for future police and how we can affect that. Okay, you mean uh, recruitment, uh, bringing in new people to become officers. And what is your concern uh, about that, or or what do you want to see in the recruitment of new officers? I I live in Minneapolis. I would love to see the the cops in the neighborhood reflect the culture and the people of the neighborhood and be from the neighborhood. And I understand that you can't be hired as a cop until you're 25, so there's eight years from high school that we're losing a lot of potential police officers. So I'd like to know what can be done to help you know, bridge that gap to, to help channel the young people up from the neighborhoods into being police. Okay, looking at the, the future future of law enforcement there. Uh, James? Yeah, so so at Metro State University, we have a, a School of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice, which provides education and training to get people into uh, the profession. What's unique in Minnesota is that you don't go to a police academy, you go to a college or a university, and that is the pathway into Mm -hmm. the profession. So to answer that question, how do we diversify law enforcement? How do we get more people involved? I think we have to incentivize this. All the challenges of getting people into higher education are exacerbated in getting them into law enforcement in the state of Minnesota. So we need those incentives, whether they are financial or in terms of time and opportunity costs, to get people in. And the other thing is they need mentorship. People need to see themselves in that role. They need to know that people like them who look like them can be in law enforcement. And that requires mentorship and that requires engagement in communities. And that's something we've tried to do with our program is really be more community embedded and community engaged in the work that we do. Very much so. You know, there's some organizations, uh, Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, even the Minnesota State Police Foundation now are doing a lot of work trying to change, cause a paradigm shift in where we get our officers from. There's some very true fact. What they see is what what they'll be. If young people can see officers who look like them, it will help the recruitment efforts. But every police executive that I know right now is struggling on recruitment. Mm -hmm. There's been a general lack of interest in doing the job. And there's a variety of factors that lead to that. But I think just like any other business, we have to use data to help drive our decisions, recruitment, retention and hiring. But we have to hire the right people. Uh, Matthew, you grew up in Philadelphia. You went to Delaware State University where you played football, hoped to play in the NFL one day, you write in your book. But instead, you became a police officer for the city of Arlington, Virginia, which is right outside of Washington, D.C. Tell me about that decision. Well, you know, growing growing up in Philadelphia, I saw the worst of the worst in the way of policing. Uh, It was a very heavy police culture and very over-policed culture within black communities. So for me, it was a matter of trying to be a part of the change that I wanted to see. I was certain that me in a uniform could have change and meaningful change, not just while I was working, but also providing that mentorship, guidance, and role model for others. Because there are many young kids that never see a black officer or an officer of color in their own community. So to your point earlier, it is essential that they're able to see that if they ever expect to be that. In the book, you share your personal story of what it was like to be a black police officer uh, who encountered racism within your own ranks uh, among your fellow officers. Uh, you were black and blue. That's the title of the book. Um, a lot of gripping and disturbing stories about what it was like for you as you were out on patrol and interacting with community members. Sure. Well, you know, it's a very interesting um 
um, interplay. So you go from one situation where you're depending on people for your very life to back you up. And they do. There's this, mm-hmm. there's this serious esprit de corps amongst everybody on your squad or your shift. And then you leave that and you're in a locker room and you're hearing racial slurs and things like that. That is the reality of how it was to work then. I can't say how it is to work now, but we know through science and data that racism is not a police problem, it's a people problem. For some reason, colleagues want to tend to separate it and say, yes, it's a problem in other industries, but not ours. Acknowledging is half the battle, and the hard work comes after we acknowledge. So how did you handle that? Um, Because it it didn't happen you know, your first couple of years, it happened throughout your career. Right. Well, I think I handled it different ways at different times. When you're new, you're taught to be quiet, mind your business, and get get off for probation at all costs. As you develop uh, more years in the department or your agency, you develop more say and you have different techniques. I've actually reported incidents like that to superiors and to internal affairs and office of inspection. So there are ways to deal with it. But at different times, you don't have the same standing when you're in for three months as you do when you're in for six years or eight years or 10 years. And, and Professor Densley, what's your understanding of what it is uh, for uh, an officer to be a person of color and also be someone who, you know, is also dealing, you know, with racism? Oh, it, it's heartbreaking when you hear some of these stories and you hear them so often um, that, that people are struggling with almost an identity crisis of what it means to be black in a community and with family and with friends and then to be black within law enforcement. Um, and but but it's also a story that you hear in other industries too Um, and it plays out i think more publicly with law enforcement because law enforcement are the public arm of the criminal justice system so we have those public interactions which then see this the one thing i think that's really important to to think about is I've spent a lot of time, I've not been a police officer myself, but I've done hundreds of hours of ride-alongs with police. And that, for me, was the most telling of how to understand this profession, which was to truly be out there and engage and see what they have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. And it's really that understanding that we hope that the new generation going into that profession gets. So to go on those ride-alongs, to be engaged with police departments to be doing the police explorer programs and the and the other uh, programs which can be a pipeline into this profession because they have to understand what it is they're getting into before they go into it because it's a difficult job and there's there's no question about that let's take more phone calls as we talk about public safety and whether it's playing a role in how you plan to vote this upcoming election in minneapolis jane is on the phone jane thank you for waiting and what did you want to share or ask I'm a New York transplant, and I moved to Minneapolis about 17 years ago. And I live in St. Anthony, Maine, uh, right by the Stone Arch Bridge, which Mm -hmm. is an absolutely great area during the day. When the shooting took place on January 25th, it took place right outside my living room window. A 31-year-old man walking his sister-in-law home from a wedding. Wrong place wrong time the crime has just escalated and so this, in this city so this is something that weighs on your mind uh, jane as as you get ready uh, to vote and so for many people i mean again they've witnessed crimes they've they've been victims of carjacking i mean we've had all kinds of things that have happened um and just you know higher numbers in the last few months uh, across minnesota uh and you know as as you think about that i mean is 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 it just is it a perception or is it real i mean james you talk a lot about the data the data is 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 it perception or is it real 
The data is that it's real. Um, we did see a rise in violence, um, carjackings, aggravated assaults, homicides were all up in the last couple of years. They are now coming down. And I think the other thing is to have a longer view of this, which is to say, although the last two years were especially bad, they we're not at the levels we were at back in the early 1990s where crime was at its peak. So crime fell for about 20 years and then it started to edge up again from about 2014, 2015 onward. And then it spiked exponentially between 2019, 2020, 2021. And now it's starting to come down a little bit in 2022. So it is real. There's no question about that. And I want to point this out as well. The caller mentioned shootings. A lot of this is driven by gun violence. It, mm -hmm. th we have a gun violence problem. It's not just a violence problem. And one of the things that is a little scary right now is the ease and accessibility of firearms in general, but also what are called switches or auto sears, which are a technology that is very cheap um, and you can modify a semi-automatic weapon to turn it automatic. And that's why we are seeing cases where multiple rounds have been fired. People are using large capacity magazines and they are shooting with these auto sears to turn them into automatic weapons. This is a real problem that we need to get a grip on. Gun violence is the issue. Um, that is the, the issue that people are experiencing. Well, the gun accessibility also, and, and let's face it, to your point earlier, more people are feeling unsafe, right, mm -hmm. in all communities. And what's the answer to that in the eyes of some? To arm myself so that I feel safer, right? But So there's accessibility and the fact that people have them and now they're using them. And then there's this tense environment that we're living and working in right now where everyone is tense about something. We're coming out of COVID, more rules, more restrictions, more masks, more ask. People are higher stress. We see more escalation of violent situations and we even see it in healthcare. Again, that was a conversation we had leading up to Election Day when we were diving into an issue that many people said mattered most to them as they voted, public safety. Samantha, uh, our time is up for today. Uh, thank you for uh, sitting with me and, and, and looking back at some of your favorite talk shows from 2022. But before we go, what's up for next year? What are you looking forward to uh, making me talk about in 2023? Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh, there's so many things. <laughs> but I think one of the things that I'm really looking forward to covering in the new year is um, the issue of marijuana legalization in oh, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, DFL yeah. lawmakers have said that this is a priority for them um, in the next session. And I'm from Oregon, which has had marijuana legalized since 2014. And I just think it's a really fascinating policy issue, honestly, the way that regulation varies so much from state to state. And I'm curious to see how Minnesota lawmakers are going to craft their policy around legal marijuana. Yeah, every detail matters. And, you know, we've done some shows, we've talked about the THC uh, edibles. And so all of this will be um, very much the center of a lot of conversations in 2023. Yeah, and we're looking forward to having those conversations and in having, the new year. And having our listeners participate, call in and tell us what they're thinking. Yeah, too. that's my favorite right. part about working on the show is I love hearing all of the just really interesting perspectives that our callers and listeners bring in. So mm -hmm. it's it's always so much fun to work um, on this show. And I'm really grateful to you and our audience and the wonderful team we have. All right. That is Samantha Matsumoto, one of our producers here for the 9 a.m. talk show. Thanks, Samantha. Thank you so much, Angela. Our time is up for today. 
This conversation was produced by Samantha Matsumoto. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk to you again tomorrow morning at 9.